Hello everyone, this is Vartok again with another Music and Sci-Fi guest podcast. It's December 30th, 2018, and this is Trek and Sci-Fi podcast number 712. Happy New Year's, almost, to all the Trex and Sci-Fi fans out there. I suspect that many may be happy that 2018 is in the rearview mirror now, but fret not, there is a shiny new year just a day or so away, full of opportunity and sci-fi adventures. For today's podcast, I'm going to talk about Howard Leslie Shore, a Canadian composer, orchestrator, conductor, and music producer. Born in Toronto on October 18, 1946, and who is 72 years old today. This is my ninth guest podcast featuring a film composer. I hope you have enjoyed these over the year. Howard Shore, active since 1978, composes music for classical, orchestral, and film scores, and is best known for his music to the Lord of Rings trilogy films. To give you an idea of Howard's success, he has composed the scores for four Academy Award Best Picture winners, which are, hand me the envelope please, The Silence of the Lambs in 1991, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King in 2003, The Departed in 2006, and most recently, Spotlight in 2015. He himself has won two Academy Awards for Best Original Score, for The Lord of the Ring, The Fellowship of the Ring in 2001, and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, 2003, and also a third Oscar for Best Original Song for Into the West from The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. He has also won a number of other awards, including three Golden Globe Awards and four Grammy Awards. Just two years ago, in 2016, Shore was appointed as an Officer of the Order of Canada, which is the second highest honor for merit in the system of orders, decorations, and medals of Canada, second only to the membership in the Order of Merit. It recognizes the outstanding merit or distinguished service of Canadians who make a major difference to Canada through lifelong contributions in every field of endeavor as well as the efforts by non-Canadians who have made the world better by their actions. Membership is accorded to those who exemplify the Order's Latin motto, Desiderantes Meliorum Patrium, meaning they desire a better country. Congratulations, Howard! And oh, uh, Treks and Sci-Fi fans, don't worry, Canadian Bill Shatner was awarded his OC one year earlier in 2017. So I am going to say up front that Howard is not especially known for composing music for sci-fi films. He has done a few. However, he is definitely known for his work on fantasy films, which I know are also a favorite for Treks and Sci-Fi fans. And for reference, and in giving credit where due, for today's podcast I'm going to draw heavily on resources from the IMDb, YouTube interviews, and especially the Film Tracks website, among others. Howard was born in a Jewish family, the son of Bernice and Max Shore. He started studying music when eight or nine years old, and played as a member of bands by the time he was 13 years old. His interest in a professional career in music started early, as a teenager, when he was 17. After graduating from the Forest Hill Collegiate Institute in Toronto, 
Howard attended and graduated from the Berkeley College of Music in Boston in 1969. Thirty-nine years later, in 2008, as a famous graduate of Berkeley, spelled B-E-R-K-L-E-E, -E, by the way, he was awarded an honorary doctorate of music. Some of the instruments he has learned to play include the alto saxophone, organ, piano, clarinet, and flute. Let's hear Howard talk about his early years from a 2017 interview on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's talk show, Q on CBC. Um, I, I was studying the clarinet uh, with uh, Morris Weinzweig, who is John Weinzweig, who we know is the great Canadian uh, composer. Morris was his brother. He was teaching me the clarinet. I was nine years old. He felt uh, that I should learn counterpoint and harmony as well as the clarinet lessons. So each week yeah. was an exercise in, in those two uh, basics of composition. And once he got me writing, uh, I studied a lot of instruments, but eventually I put them down and I kept the pencil moving. Well, how old were you when you started writing? Uh, nine. And were you, were you intrigued by that? Did, that? did that grab you in a way that simple performance didn't do? Um, I, I didn't. I mean, I knew. Uh, I knew I wanted to. Be, I was interested in music, and I wanted to play uh, woodwind instruments, uh, particularly because I was interested in jazz. Um, and I thought the lessons in counterpoint and harmony, because I was only a kid, mm -hmm. I thought they were part of learning the clarinet. Right. I didn't realize that this was a, a kind of a composition was a whole whole sort of world in itself. So uh, I didn't know, I, but I just uh, did the exercises. And frankly, I've just kept writing since, uh, since I was a kid. Shore didn't start out as a composer, but rather as an instrumentalist in a band. From 1969 through 1972, Howard was a member of Lighthouse, a jazz fusion band. Lighthouse was formed in 1968 in Toronto by vocalist drummer Skip Prokop and keyboardist Paul Huffert. The band originally consisted of 13 members, which included a horn section, in which Howard played alto sax. Here is a bit of the song One Fine Morning by Lighthouse, released in 1971. To me, their sound is reminiscent of other 70s bands like Chicago and Earth, Wind & Fire. See what you think. Let's hear Howard talk about his involvement with bands during his formative years as a musician. Again, from the 2017 Q on CBC interview. I did eight albums with Lighthouse, yes. Open for Jimi Hendrix? At the Isle of Wight, yes. Toured with Jefferson Airplane? Indeed, yes. 
<laughs> the Grateful Dead. Elton John opened for you, which is one of my favorite stories. When you think about that time in your life, what, what springs to mind? Uh, well, these were really formative years. Uh, we were also playing with orchestras at the time, uh, with uh, the Edmonton Symphony and Montreal. We did a lot of touring in Canada with different orchestras, playing a ballet that we wrote, an original ballet. And we were young, and it was a very exciting uh, period to be traveling. I did a thousand one-nighters in four years all over the world. Mm -hmm. Howard was involved with Lighthouse and other bands for a number of years, but eventually left due to the toll of being continually on the road. Let's hear Howard explain. The road takes its toll. I mean, I was on the road for four years, and I, um, there was other things I wanted to do. There was other music I was interested in. I started working in uh, documentaries and composing music for documentaries at that time. And I worked in radio at, and television at CBC. And, at CBC? Yes. And, um, you know, I just had things that I wanted to get on with and, and, and exercise my ideas in music. Quite young, I walked into the offices in Bay Street, and uh, I said, I'm a young composer, songwriter, and uh, they gave me an, uh, a kind of like a little office with no windows. I had a big upright Victorian piano and, and a coat rack kind of thing, and uh, I would go there and write music, and they put me to work. In the 1970s, Shore mainly composed music for theatrical performances and a few television shows. In 1970, he became the music director for Lauren Michaels and Hart Pomerantz's short-lived TV program, The Hart and Lauren Terrific Hour. In 1974, he wrote music for Canadian magician Doug Henning for his magic musical Spellbound. But then came a big break. In 1975, Howard was hired by his friend Lauren Michaels to become the musical director for the then-new television show Saturday Night Live. Howard and Lorne had become friends since he was 13 years old, where they met at a summer camp, where they put on shows, including their own musical comedy show called The Fast Show. Let's hear Howard talk about his early relationship with Lorne Michaels. Yes, I worked with Lorne uh, in radio at CBC when he was with uh, Hart Pomerantz. He was a kind of a duo uh, stand-up comedy act. But you guys had met before at summer camp, right? We met very early at a camp called Timberlane in uh, northern Ontario, Halliburton, actually. And uh, we did uh, summer shows, musicals, uh, sketch comedy, anything we could do to kind of entertain. Well, I'm still good friends with Lauren, very yeah. dear friends. And we've known each other for many years now, so it's, it, it, it's really a strong relationship. Howard actually wrote the theme song for Saturday Night Live. Howard worked at SNL as music directors for five years and actually appeared on stage in 16 uncredited roles in musical skits and performances as a DJ, a drummer, a band member, among others. Then in 1978, Howard composed a score for his first movie, which was for the B-film I Miss You, Hugs and Kisses. The next year, in 1979, Howard scored his first film, The Brood, with Canadian film director David Cronenberg, which began a long-lasting relationship where Howard has since composed music for all of his films since The Brood, with the exception of The Dead Zone in 1983. In the 2017 CBC interview, Howard talks about his early years as a composer, 
getting to work in film with Cronenberg on the horror film The Brood. For many years, I was interested in working with orchestras, with uh, string sections. I wanted to be in the recording studio. I wanted access to those, to those art forms, and I thought films might be a good way uh, to further my musical ideas that I had. And I was a fan of David Cronenberg's movies for many years. I saw them at underground film festivals when I was in my teens. David's a few years older than me, and um, he had made a few movies before The Brood, and I had seen all the 8-millimeter movies that he had made, 16-millimeter and the 35-millimeter films. And so I approached him as a young composer, and I knew him a little bit through friends. And I asked him if I could work on The Brood, and he uh, took me on. It was the first time he had worked with an original score for his films, and it was also the first time that I had really worked with a great director like that. I had only done one film before that. We kind of grew up making movies, if you will. We've done 15 films over the last 30 years. Really, a lot of my work in films, I've done almost 80 films now, but David Cronenberg's work was really the, I always think it's the backbone of my creative life in film. Since becoming a film composer, Howard has often worked with directors David Cronenberg and Peter Jackson, and occasionally Martin Scorsese. His compositions evoke dark, ominous themes, and he makes heavy use of violins and choirs, as you will hear later. Here is the main title track from The Brood, which reminds me a bit of Bernard Herrmann's Psycho. Throughout his career, Howard has now composed music for a total of 15 Cronenberg films. Howard's very next score was for the 1981 science fiction horror film Scanners, another Cronenberg film, and starring Stephen Lack, Jennifer O'Neill, Michael Ironside, and Patrick McGowan. In the film, Scanners are people with unusual telepathic and telekinetic powers. Consect, a supplier of weaponry and security systems, searches out scanners to use them for its own purposes. The film's plot concerns the attempt by Daryl Revok, played by Michael Ironside, a renegade scanner, to wage a war against Consac. Another scanner, Cameron Vale, played by Stephen Lack, is dispatched by Consac to stop Revok. Here is a portion of the main title track.
Remakes can be met with skepticism. However, this was not the case for David Cronenberg's 1986 version of the 1958 science fiction horror tragedy film The Fly. Whereas much of the original film was truly laughable, Cronenberg's version was a horror tragedy of the highest order. Praised soundly by critics, earning the Academy Award for makeup, and rewarded with more box office success than all of his other films combined. The basic premise survives, an eccentric but likable scientist, played by Jeff Goldblum, invents a working teleportation device, but has difficulty sending living objects through her. He eventually works out the kinks, but in the process of teleporting himself, his DNA is accidentally fused with that of a housefly that occupied the chamber with him during the experiment. His transformation into a human-fly hybrid thus begins, slowly at first, but eventually turning him into a hideous, rampaging creature. Interestingly, Cronenberg and Shore both agreed to approach the fly as though it were an opera. Shore's work for the fly remains a highlight in his pre-The Lord of the Rings career. The general tonality of his music for the fly is harmonic enough to remain pleasantly suspenseful for much of its length, while exploring wildly fiendish and challenging avenues when necessary. Here is the track, The Last Visit. Interestingly, two decades later, Howard adapted his music into a true opera form for live performance, also called The Fly, that opened in Paris in 2008, and also played in Los Angeles. 
Unfortunately, it seems that the critics wanted it. Overall, Howard Short has composed music for nearly 90 films. It just won't be possible to cover all these works, so I'll be choosing perhaps his more famous and most important works for this podcast. In order to partly understand Howard's music for film, you have to understand how he sees music in a film. What is the music accomplishing? In this 2017 interview at the University of Oxford, we hear him talk about that. Why have music in a scene? Why is it there? What, what, what is it really accomplishing? What, what aspect of the filmmaking process is being enhanced by the use of the music? I mean, to create good films, you want good balance of all of the elements in the film. And film music is just one part of it, along with the cinematography, the editing, the acting, uh, the directing, the uh, screenwriting. The fantasy comedy film Big was released in 1988. It was a watershed moment for both actor Tom Hanks and director Penny Marshall. And to some extent, it helped expand notice for a somewhat obscure composer at the time named Howard Shore. Never expected to be a hit success, Big was the kind of affable film that grew out of word of mouth until it stormed through the awards season of 1988-89, with a wealth of praise spread around to the entire production team. Hanks plays the adult incarnation of a boy who longs simply to be big and receives his magically granted wish from an amusement park machine. While stuck in Hank's adult body, the boy becomes successful in the toy industry and even teaches a romantic interest how to regain her inner child as well. It was a perfect merging of the romantic comedy and science fiction and fantasy genres. Up until now, those who knew about Howard were familiar with his compositions for dark thrillers and horror films. His task included the realistic merging of musics for the concepts of light romance, New York, boyhood fun, and, of course, a creepy carnival. The results of his efforts may not be overwhelming for the listener, but Shore adequately hits every note. Standing on the set during the shooting of the film and repeatedly rescoring scenes until the desired effect was achieved. The light jazz band tones, orchestral romance, and thematic adaptations are all well performed, although they never lose sight of the genre of hopelessly optimistic comedy for which they were written. Here is part of my favorite track from the film, titled Goodbye.
The third score for Howard in 1988 was for Dead Ringers, a Canadian-American psychological horror film directed by Cronenberg and starring Jeremy Irons in a dual role as identical twin gynecologists. Elliot and Beverly, here a man's name, are identical twins and gynecologists who jointly operate a highly successful clinical practice in Toronto that specializes in the treatment of female fertility problems. Elliot, the more confident and cynical of the two twins, seduces women who come to the clinic. When he tires of them, the women are passed on to the shy and passive Beverly, while the women remain unaware of the substitution. Typical Cronenberg creepy. For Dead Ringers, I have chosen to play a portion of the finale track. During 1991, Shore composed a score for the highly acclaimed film The Silence of the Lambs, starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, and directed by American Jonathan Demme. The world suddenly became fascinated with the brilliant cannibal Hannibal Lecter, enough so to encourage actor Anthony Hopkins to reprise its incredibly delicious performance of the character in multiple sequels. Hannibal Lecter is the disturbing key to success for a young FBI agent named Clarice Darling, played by Foster, who solicits help from the psychologically menacing criminal in her frantic investigation into the mind of a psychotic kidnapper from whom she needs to rescue a politician's daughter. As tense a conversational thriller to ever come from Hollywood, the silence of the land swept through the award seasons like an uncontrollable wildfire. The highly disturbing interactions between Hopkins and Foster achieving legendary status. Among the few aspects of the production of The Silence of the Lamb that really didn't gain much attention at the time was Howard Shore's effectively troubling score. Had the composer enjoyed better mainstream name recognition at the time, he might have been carried on to his own awards consideration due to the overwhelming critical and popular triumphs of the film. 
Despite producing quality suspense material dating back to The Fly in the 1980s, Shore's reputation as a solid composer for this genre didn't really become widespread until a variety of higher-profile projects later in the 1990s. During a 2017 interview at Oxford, Howard had this to say about his choice of music for the Clarice Starling character. Plotting of the movie is, is the relationship of the composer and the director in discussing where music will be used in the film, how it will be used, do the images require a certain type of composition. It's really uh, an important meeting of minds, the spotting. And with Jonathan Demme, one of the things that he mentioned to me early on in that process was that for this type of genre movies like Silence of the Lambs, which was a genre movie, it became you know, an Academy Award-winning film that won five Oscars at the time. But it was, it could have easily gone into the realm of genre. But one of the things Jonathan did with, with the music was to ex have me express the ideas inherent in Clarice Starling's character. It was kind of important to think of uh, music in film as essentially, uh, film music is essentially about point of view. You could take one character in the scene and write to them. Generally, in genre movies, the composer would write to the monster, which would have been the lector character. In this case, because I wrote so dramatically for the character of Starling, I think it opened the movie up to a much broader audience. Having just heard about the Clary Starling theme, let's listen to part of it. With some fava beans, livers, and a nice Chianti, shall we? received his first BAFTA nomination for the score. The film became the third and still most recent to win the five major Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Actress. Shore is the only living composer to have scored a top five Oscar-winning film. 
As of the 90th Academy Awards, a total of 43 films have been nominated in all five of these award categories, but only three films have won all five of the major awards. These are It Happened One Night, 1934, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, and The Silence of the Lambs in 1991. Howard's music was entirely functional, that is, supporting the action on the screen as opposed to bringing attention to itself. The whole listening experience is so bleak that it's difficult to recommend the album for standalone enjoyment. There really is no respite from the creepy environment of the score. Also in 1991, Shore provided the score for Naked Lunch, a science fiction drama film co-written and directed by David Cronenberg, and starring Peter Weller, Judy Davis, Ian Holm, and Roy Scheider. It is an adaptation of William S. Burroughs' 1959 novel of the same name. A crazy plot. William Lee is exterminator who finds that his wife Joan is stealing his insecticide to use a drug to get high. Lee is arrested by the police, and he begins hallucinating because of bug powder exposure. He believes he's a secret agent with two handlers in the forms of a talking insectoid typewriter and an alien mugwump. The bug assigns him the mission of killing his wife Joan. She is allegedly an agent of an organization called Interzone Incorporated. Critics liked the film, and it is rated 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. But it was a box office bomb, earning only $2.7 million. Ouch. Here is a part of the track name Intersong, a jazzy sax solo. <laughs> In 1992, Howard provided scores to Prelude to a Kiss and Single White Female. Starting in 1993, Howard's output began to grow significantly with five scores, perhaps as Hollywood began to take notice. After the film Sliver, Howard composed a score for M. Butterfly, the fourth film adaptation about Madame Butterfly, not to be confused with the famous opera by Giacomo Puccini with a totally different plot. Loosely based upon true events, the Cronenberg film concerns René Gallimard, played by Jeremy Irons, a French diplomat assigned to Beijing, China in the 1960s. He becomes infatuated with a Peking opera performer, Song Liling, who spies on him for the government of the People's Republic of China. Their affair lasts for 20 years, with Gallimard all the while apparently unaware or willfully ignorant well, the fact that in Peking opera, Dan roles are traditionally performed by men. Here's the namesake track, M. Butterfly, 
properly evoking a sad oriental ambience. In 1993, if not for Jurassic Park, the Robin Williams comedy Mrs. Doubtfire, directed by Chris Columbus, would have been the top-grossing film, ultimately hauling in more than $440 million. An initially mixed critical response eventually transformed into widespread acceptance of the film in the long term. Williams' Daniel Hilliard is a down-and-out voice actor in San Francisco and father of two, whose wife leaves him and takes his children with her. A lack of sympathy for the mother, played by Sally Field, and her new boyfriend Pierce Brosnan, in a memorable pre-Bond role, pushes the audience to root for Williams' character as he enlists the assistance of his makeup expert brother, none other than Harvey Firestein, to create for him a disguise in the form of an old woman, so that he can use that to gain access to his children again. Williams assumes the role of the fictitious Mrs. Doubtfire and manages to become hired as the new nanny for his own children. The soundtrack to the film is dominated on screen by a variety of pop culture favorites. For the airy score in between these pop song placements, Columbus turned to Howard Shore. The director has collaborated with some of the biggest composing names in Hollywood, including John Williams, James Horner, and Hans Zimmer though it's his lasting partnership with John Williams for the Home Alone and Harry Potter franchises that are best known. Although Shore was far from being a household name at this time, and was, for film score collectors, a reliable source of brooding orchestral suspense and horror music, he was also adept at cranking out wholesome comedies when necessary. Perhaps the most notable of Shore's less ominous fare at the time was Big, and Mrs. Doubtfire resembles the orchestral portions of that popular score without bringing too much attention to itself. As it stands, the album is a pleasant diversion. Here's a portion of track number one titled, Mrs. Doubtfire, that is indeed light and airy.
By the 1990s, Howard was an established and recognized composer and working on an ever-increasing number of films. One of those films was the somewhat fictionalized biopic of the life of cult filmmaker and transvestite Ed Wood. The production of the 1994 story of Ed Wood experienced scheduling delays and studio conflicts over the fact that director Tim Burton, who had to step in late to lead the project, insisted that the film be shot in black and white. Studio Touchstone had to rescue the film from Columbia. Another oddity of Ed Wood was the temporary departure of composer Danny Elfman from his otherwise enduring collaboration with director Tim Burton. Those two had experienced a petty argument at the conclusion of The Nightmare Before Christmas not long before, and it took a few years before they would meet and patch things up, allowing Shore to get the gig. From the 2017 Oxford interview, let's hear Howard talk about the orchestral sound for Ed Wood. Uh, with the London Philharmonic, it used very little strings. I think maybe there's maybe eight or nine string players. It's mostly woodwinds, brass, and percussion. And it was trying to evoke the sounds of uh, this era in monster movies, you know, from the late 50s. In fact, Shore succeeded well enough in addressing the 1950s era of kitsch mambo, jazzy funk, and orchestral cheesiness in Ed Wood that many casual listeners may not notice a significant difference between Shore's approach and Elfman's similarly quirky mannerisms. Let's listen to Howard's feedback on his choice of using a theremin for Ed Wood. It wasn't until the late 40s, the 50s, that in Hollywood, they, like Bernard Herrmann used it in The Day the Earth Stood Still, and Ro Miklas Rosa used it, and they were starting to use it for science fiction films. So I kind of, I was evoking not the classical era of the theremin, which had had a great, a great creative period. What I was doing was evoking this science fiction period. And now, let's finally hear part of the namesake track, Ed Wood and the Theremin. In 1995, director David Fincher's thriller Seven provided a masterpiece of psychological depravity and despair, so overwhelmingly depressing that it captured your attention despite its absolutely grotesque depictions of violence. A killer frustrated by society's ills creates elaborate murder scenes inspired by the historical Seven Deadly Sins, eventually involving the pursuing detectives in the gruesome execution of the final two sins. The complicated and shockingly disturbing methods of killing in Seven are among the most difficult ever put to screen. And the agonizing climax, calmly but devastatingly performed by Kevin Spacey in a heralded cameo role, 
was nothing less than traumatizing. Undoubtedly, Fincher turned ashore after hearing his score to The Silence of the Lambs. Here is Howard's track Gluttony, representing one of the seven deadly sins, with its dissonance, its slow decadence. Howard certainly captured evil in that track. Skipping ahead to 1996 saw the release of six Howard Shore scores, including yet another David Cronenberg psychological thriller named Crash. Typical for Cronenberg, the film generated considerable controversy upon its release and opened to mixed and highly divergent reactions from critics. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, where it received a special jury prize. When then-jury president Francis Ford Coppola announced the award for originality, for daring, and for audacity. He stated that it had been a controversial choice, and that certain jury members did abstain very passionately. Of note is that the award has not been given since. Its plot involves a film director, played by James Spader, who fetishes car crashes in order to satisfy sexual cravings. I am including part of the namesake track Crash from the film, since it showcases a side of Howard Shore music you don't hear very often. In 1997, Howard teamed up with director James Mangold to score the music for Copland, an American crime drama film with an all-star cast including Sylvester Stallone, Harvey Keitel, Ray Liotta, and Robert De Niro. Notably, Stallone gained 40 pounds to play the part of a small-town sheriff, Freddie Heflin, who idolizes the NYPD and hopes to become an officer, but can't do because he's going deaf in one ear. 
Here's a part of Howard's brooding track, The Sheriff of Copland, in Stallone's honor. did not compose for any movies released in 1998, perhaps taking a well-deserved break. In 1999, Howard supported yet another David Cronenberg effort, a science fiction body horror film titled Existence. It stars Jennifer Lee and Jude Law. As in his 1983 film Videodrome, Cronenberg gives his psychological statement to how humans react and interact with the technologies that surround them in this case, the world of video games. In the near future, biotechnological virtual reality game consoles, known as game pods, have replaced electronic ones. The pods present umbicords that attach to bioports connectors surgically inserted into a player's spine. Two game companies, Antenna Research and Cortical Systematics, compete against each other. In addition, a group known as The Realists fight both companies to prevent the deforming of reality. In the film, the latest video game is titled Existence, spelled E-X-I-S-T-E-N-Z. The film was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction, but lost to The Matrix. Here is part of the track Existence by Antenna, used to help set a foreboding ambiance.
Next in line in 1999 was Howard's score to Analyze This, a gangster comedy film starring Robert De Niro as a mafioso and Billy Crystal as his psychiatrist. Owing to time, I'm going to have to skip ahead to 2001 and the film The Score. Wouldn't it be nice if the movie was actually about the music, but no, The Score is an American crime thriller film directed by Frank Oz, starring Robert De Niro, Edward Norton, and the last film for legendary Marlon Brando, who was nearing death. For composer Howard Shore, the score also represented an end of the line, so to speak, because this was his last mainstream work before he would stun the world with his music for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, later that year. Until that point, he had acquired the nickname of Cult Score, in some circles because of the kinds of films he had chosen to score in the 1990s. His style of writing lent itself to obscurity, for he wasn't the type to embrace bombast or melodic theme, which I have to admit I like. But his scores always had a gritty edge to them, and the score is a perfect example of that. While his music for The Lord of the Rings did finally bring Shore's career the recognition many thought it already deserved, there was hope that the score would actually be that popular vehicle. It didn't turn out as such, but while many of Shore's scores aren't good listening experiences when divorced from their films, the score is an exception. Because the veteran criminal portrayed by De Niro also happens to own and run a jazz club in Montreal, Shore appropriately sets the mood of the score to a fast-paced, jazzy, urban atmosphere with a hint of noir style. Here is a part of track number five, Safferstein, from The Score. Then in 2001, Howard Shore composed what many consider to be one of the top film scores of all times, with the release of The Lord of the Ring, The Fellowship of the Ring. Because the soundtrack is in fact my personal Shore favorite, I'm going to provide much more discussion here about the music than for other films, and I'm going to give credit to Film Tracks for the 4,000-word detailed analyses of the music that I'm using here. For those who really want to delve into the music, Doug Adams of Film Score Monthly in 2010 released an entire book over 400 pages in length detailing the Lord of the Rings music called The Music of the Lord of the Rings Films A Comprehensive Account of Howard Shore's Scores available at Amazon for $54. No franchise in the history of the movie industry was as meticulously planned as Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings with several years of production coordination in the late 1990s, leading to a series of three creatively superior and immensely popular films from 2001 to 2003. Not only did the work of Jackson and his dedicated crew enthrall the many hardcore fans of author J.R.R. Tolkien, but the appeal of his technically marvelous and well-adapted films touched a wider audience that not only led to monumental box office returns, 
with critical accolades and countless Academy Awards, reaching beyond the usual boundaries of the technical categories for films in this genre. The translation of the saga of The Lord of the Rings happened to coincide with the same efforts being applied to the first of the Harry Potter books, making late 2001 an incredible time for fantasy enthusiasts. Recall that Harry Potter scores were being composed by John Williams. Many in the realm of film music mistakenly expected that veteran blockbuster composer James Horner would eventually receive and accept the assignment, especially given the strength of his thematically complex and large-scale fantasy writing for Willow, among others. When Howard Shore was announced as the artist of choice for Jackson's The Lord of the Rings franchise, initial collective gas resonated from the film music and Hobbit galleries. The composer had been typecast into a role of composing Austin's subtle and introverted scores for cultish, dark films of suspense, horror, and disturbing drama, dating back to The Silence of the Lamb and The Fly. The extensive search for a composer for a Tolkien franchise, which had included Horner, Danny Elfman, and Wojciech Kilar, ended with Shore because Peter Jackson and screenwriter Fran Walsh were impressed by three facets of Shore's career his ability to write intelligently for literary adaptations, his operatic sensibilities, as heard specifically in The Fly, and his broad knowledge of instrumental colors. Whereas most composers take around a month to write a score for a major picture, Shore cleared his schedule for an entire year in preparation for The Fellowship of the Ring, and he took the same amount of time for each sequel, too. Since The Lord of the Ring represents Howard's most recognized works, I have chosen a number of tracks to play from The Fellowship of the Ring, although the comments afterwards will be about the score as a whole. The first is the track Many Meetings, which I love for the sense of wonderment and the use of choirs, and this is the track I've come to think of as the melody for this film.
The second track I've chosen is titled Concerning Hobbits and will be recognizable to any Lord of the Ring enthusiast as the cue for the Hobbits. The next track I've chosen is The Treason of Isengard, to represent one of the big tracks showing how Shore can bring it on with the use of a full orchestra and choirs. Bye. 
Although Enya's involvement in the score was controversial at the time of the release of The Fellowship of the Ring, her song over the end credits, May It Be, earned her Golden Globe and Academy Award nominations. Enya was, of course, the primary reason the album sold so well as it did before the audiences realized the quality of Shore's surrounding material. Unlike Shore, Enya obviously needed no introduction, even to soundtrack collectors. Her songs had been appearing in films steadily since the early 1990s. Reprise Records was fully aware of this fact and gave her large recognition on the album, although she represented only a few minutes of the score. Here is the track, Council of Elrond, with Enya. Overall, Shore's work quickly became a modern classic and won the composer his first Oscar despite competition from a field of very strong nominees. Because of Shore's dutiful style of intelligent musical design, you can't point at one or two momentous blasts of theme or action that will exemplify the reasons why this score pushes all the right buttons. With Williams and Horner, such identification is simple as pointing to a concert suite. Shore, however, uses the solid four-star personality of each cue to culminate in a five-star whole. The massive and gothic choral passages, so deeply dominated by the male singers, provides cues that are genuinely frightening, both religiously and otherwise. Lighter moments, such as those in the early scenes with the hobbits, offer a break from the awe without resorting to silliness. The fellowship theme on brass is appropriately lyrical and heroic. The Woodwinds make several pointed appearances to perform the ethnic and natural representations of location. The string layers are well executed at each turn, and the resounding percussion makes the Isengard material come alive. Most of the themes are presented in the kind of subtlety that glorifies Tolkien's vision while breaking above a moderately volume only for explicit action scenes. Shore's choral, orchestral, and accented performances are so deeply woven into a superior comprehensive fabric that the music provides all the necessary magic that the Tolkien world demands and deserves. 
Finally, it should be noted that there have been three releases for the Lord of Rings trilogy films. The original releases were limited to CD disc memory space and include only about 30% of Howard's tracks. A second release in 2005 on DVDs provided arguably all of the tracks and included 5.1 Dolby Digital versions as well, and is well worth the extra price. And there is the Rarities Archive CD that has included the back of the Doug Adams book I mentioned earlier, which includes a variety of alternate performances, initial synthetic mock-ups, a trailer cue, and different edits of cues for scenes that were altered in post-production. The music is followed by about 10 minutes of a recorded interview of Shore conducted by Adams. Moving on to Howard's next film, if you're looking at purchasing a home that comes with a panic room, isn't that some kind of indication that you're moving into the wrong neighborhood? A novelty item that was strangely becoming popular at upscale homes at the turn of the century, the panic room was the defining subject of the 2002 thriller named, not surprisingly, Panic Room. Director David Fincher's suburban tale pits a homeowner, played by Jodie Foster, and her daughter against a gang of ruthless burglars. The amount of psychological trauma that is often inflicted upon the viewer in these productions is something that Shore seems to be able to understand and perpetuate, because the composer has a knack for bucking Hollywood trends and providing equally disturbing music for these projects. Whereas a composer like Jerry Goldsmith often preferred to score his horror assignments of the time with a more extroverted, stylistic, and thematic identity, Shore was content to travel closer to the Bernard Herrmann route, occasionally using the orchestra like a blunt tool with which to draw out the primordial emotions of the audience by making an underscore that sounds more like noise than music. Employing a nearly full orchestra, minus trumpets, Shore uses the ensemble as a noise-generating machine to create a range of sounds from spooky ambiance to grinding horror. Here's a part of the track titled Fourth Floor Hallway. To the joy of crowds around the world, the 2002 sequel to The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, followed its predecessor by only a year. Proving that gone were the days of multi-year waits for fans of popular fantasy motion picture franchises. And it then seemed that only yesterday Peter Jackson's incredible The Fellowship of the Ring had taken the world by storm. And yet Jackson and his co-writers and co-producers had already been working on The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers and The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, extensively, 
while the first film's final touches were being applied. The reasons for the prosperity of the Fellowship of the Ring, both in terms of awards and popular opinion, transcended the usual technical categories of motion picture production, though few can argue that Howard Shore's music had little impact on the film. His music had become the first fantasy epic to win the Academy Award for Best Original Score in years. Audiences responded overwhelmingly well to the composer's highly intellectual and stunningly diverse approach to the first score, even beyond the expected rush of attention caused by Enya's involvement with the project. Shore ensured the continuation of his mind-boggling epic sound by utilizing the London Philharmonic in a massive coliseum, and later mixed the sounds of two different choirs, children's and adults. The scale of the second project is no less diminished, and no better evidence of that successive effort is the replacement of Enya with several operatic voices of similar New Age style from around the world for the score. Shore also continued where he left off in the grand scheme of this composition for the franchise. As the broken fellowship's journey into peril continues, and the landscape of Middle-earth descends further into darkness, Shore bolsters his music with an increased size of scope and brazen thematic sweep. The instrumentation and use of voices are more powerfully expansive than in the previous film, despite the continuation of almost all of the solo elements from that score. Instrumentally, Shore adds the Hardinger, a Norwegian fiddle, to represent Rohan, while the North African Raita reed instruments accents the mortar theme, and log drums, doruba, wood xylophones, and the cymbalom for Gollum all provide a rich texture for the score. For the two towers, I have chosen to play the track titled The Uruk High, which translates into Orc Folk. Once again, like The Fellowship of the Ring, the music to Two Towers is available in multiple albums. The first contained only 73 minutes, with 100 minutes unavailable. The 2006 complete set resolves that issue. Doug Adams' book with its accompanying CD of Rarities Archive about the music of The Lord of the Ring provides alternate versions and unreleased supplemental materials, if you are hardcore. Moving on to another 2002 effort, Howard provided a score to Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. The film is an American epic period drama film set in the New York slums. In 1863, a long-running Catholic-Protestant feud erupts into violence, just as an Irish immigrant group is protesting about low wages caused by an influx of freed slaves, as well as the threat of conscription. Corsese spent 20 years developing the project until, in 1999, Harvey Weinstein and his production company, Merrimax Films, acquired it, 
Released in December 2002, it grossed $193 million worldwide against its $100 million budget. Receiving positive reviews from critics for Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, Gorsese's directing, the production design, and the costume design. Indeed, it was nominated for 10 Oscars at the Academy Awards, however, winning none. Most of the score utilized a mix of contemporary pop and world music compositions and tunes from mid-19th century Ireland. Howard provided only three tracks called Brooklyn Heights 1, 2, and 3, which is not all that surprising given how busy he was scoring music for Peter Jackson. Here is just a part of Brooklyn Heights 3. In 2003, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, was released making the trilogy of films the most successful in the history of cinema. The film enjoyed monumental grosses worldwide and overwhelmed the Academy Awards just a few months later with one of the best showings by a single film in history. The frenzied buzz defeated strong competition from both the Harry Potter and the Matrix franchises. The final film in the series won all 11 of its Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, which also tied with Ben-Hur in 1959 and Titanic in 1997, the record for most Academy Awards won by a film. In the case of The Return of the King, Shaw recorded the score late in the summer of 2003, but was prepared to write and record additional material for the production in March of 2004 to accommodate additional scenes on the DVD release of the film. As a result, some of the prominent cues in the original soundtrack no longer matched the tracks in the movie, giving audiophiles room to complain. In addition, director Peter Jackson played with some of the most prominent cues, even so far as moving them to places Howard had not intended them to be. The epic scale of the first two scores was obviously continued in the final chapter, completing Shore and Jackson's notion that the music was meant to be one massive, single score that had simply been divided into three parts. With The Return of the King, however, a case could be made that this third score in the trilogy has far less in common with its two predecessors than they had with each other. The Academy Award-winning score for The Fellowship of the Ring was naturally expanded upon in The Two Towers, with the second score clearly restating motifs and themes from the first one while establishing its own new ideas for Rohan, among others. This process did not carry over into The Return of the King. Rather, since the third film's tumultuous events necessitate the awkward, fragmented merging of many of the themes into left obvious constructs, you hear the same stylistic motifs and chord progressions of the series without the satisfyingly steady statements of previous themes. 
As a standalone score, The Return of the King has always been a superb effort. But when you pull back and compare it to The Fellowship of the Ring and The Two Towers, you can't help but feel unsatisfied by the lack of distinct highlights that made the previous two entries so consistently attractive. So here is track number 10, titled Anduril, from the original 2003 soundtrack. The mix of horns, choirs, and chords is just heavenly. As in the prior Lord of the Rings film, the last track on the album contains a Peter Jackson-required vocalist track. In this film, it is the track Into the West, sung by Eurythmics lead vocalist Annie Lennox, which won an Oscar for Best Original Song, Howard's third Oscar. Tears upon your face 
In 2004, Martin Scorsese's film The Aviator tells the story of the best years in the life of aviation genius and Hollywood producer Howard Hughes. Covering the crossover period of 1927 to 1947, the film follows the exploits of Hughes in a movie industry during its transition from silence to talkies, as well as the aircraft industry's launch toward commercial airliners and World War II fighter planes. Deeply wrapped in the culture of the time, the lengthy film provides a fine balance between the glamour of the period, the fancy of the technology and its flights, and Hughes's personal psyche during both his rise and fall. Shores' style for the movie teases the audience with repeatedly initiated crescendos that suddenly cease or disappointingly fade away, resembling Howard Hughes' life. Next, let's listen to the track Icarus from The Aviator, where Hughes is flying an experimental monoplane over rough terrain and pushing the plane to its limits. Let's listen to Howard talk about the sound for The Aviator from the 2017 interview at Oxford. It's right around the turn between silent film and, and what we call you know, music with sound, talkies. And there was 35 years of silent film and there was a lot of music created uh, for silent film. This period of The Aviator is right on the cusp of that. So what I was trying to do here was to create the sound of early Hollywood. And it was recorded in uh, Leuven, Belgium, by a, uh, the Flemish radio orchestra. And the reason I recorded it there was that I was looking for a certain sound of Europe, which was the sound of Hollywood in the 1930s. The collaboration between director David Cronenberg and composer Howard Shore has now spanned four decades and has surprisingly outlasted Shore's pairing with Lord of the Rings' Peter Jackson, whose role in the firing of Shore from King Kong in late 2005, over creative differences, is murky at best. In a note of irony, however, Shore's appearance as the conductor in the New York theater from which Kong escapes remained in the film. And, of course, his unused scores still exist. James Horner was brought in and given only two months to create the King Kong score. Cronenberg, meanwhile, continues along a familiar path with nearly every film he directs. Often dark, pervasively glum character stories, Cronenberg's works are profound but unpleasant. And while his 2005's film A History of Violence falls under the same general category, it makes some steps in new directions. There is still brutal violence, graphic sexuality, nudity, foul language, drug use, and Ed Harris's creepy deformed face. In this film, a former criminal in the big city moves to the peaceful backroads of Indiana, 
where he becomes the guy everyone likes behind the counter of his own crossroads diner. So Howard's score has to alternate between deep dark music of the criminal's past with the elements representing the aspirations of a new life. But casual listeners should be aware there's only so much happiness that can come on a rainy day. And it seems to rain every day in Cronenberg's world. Here's a portion of the final track titled Ending. Hailed as a return to director Martin Scorsese's great films of yesteryear, 2006's The Departed was as critically acclaimed as a film can be. Adapted from B-grade Hong Kong movie Infernal Affair, the film improves upon the original concept with both superior dialogue and an unquestionably magnificent cast starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Martin Sheen, Mark Wahlberg, Ray Winstone, and Jack Nicholson. The setting has been moved to Boston's Irish-American community, ruled by Jack Nicholson's delightfully ruthless hands. Intrigue is poured into the cat-and-mouse game of infiltration by moles planted in both the mob and the police force. The score for The Departed is a refreshingly strange twist on mob music. While it may not seem logical to any extent on the surface, Scorsese gave Shore the idea of using tango rhythms to portray the complex dance between criminals and cops. Shore builds on this relationship by running with the idea, providing a mob film with a Latin flavor that for some reason of perhaps brilliant proportions seems to work. With the rhythmic movement of the tangle providing the majority of the score's personality in and of itself, Shore's actual ensemble doesn't have to be large. He employs four guitarists, the elements of a rock band, and a sizable string section from an orchestra. You have to marvel at the versatility of Howard Shore as an artist with the ability to take such a risky idea from a director and make it work. Casual collectors of Shore's work will find few, if any, similarities between this score and the composer's previous works. Here is the tangle named after the film, called The Departed Tango.
In 2007, Shore composed the music for Soul of the Ultimate Nation, an online multiplayer video game often abbreviated as S-U-N, or Sun. The soundtrack is notable for being the first video game soundtrack to feature Lydia Cavina on the theremin, which you might remember we heard in Ed Wood. As near as I can tell, it remains the only video game soundtrack from Shore. Here's a portion of the track, The Epitaph, which employs a boys' choir. Not something I was expecting for a slashing game. However, given how much slashing is present in The Lord of the Rings, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. In 2006, Shore provided yet another soundtrack for David Cronenberg for his film Eastern Promises. The Russian Mafia of London is the subject of one of Cronenberg's most widely praised and less bizarre films. This film exposes the world of the Vori Ve Zakon, or literally Thief in Law, translated as Thief in a Position of the Law, that can have two meanings in Russian a legalized thief, or a thief who is the law. The plot is about a Russian teenager living in London who dies during childbirth and leaves clues to a midwife in her journal. Clues that could tie her to a rape involving a violent Russian mob family. The violin as a dominant element in the score was a discovery made by Shore after starting his work on Eastern Promises, and it is the performance of Nicola Benendeni that highlights the finished product. Shore provides two major themes for the film, and Benedetti's violin is the voice of both, creating an attractive consistency to almost every cue. I have chosen to play part of the namesake title track, Eastern Promises, for you now. Da! Skipping ahead to 2008, Shore provided the score to the film Doubt, directed by John Patrick Shanley. The film takes place in 1964 in a Catholic school in the Bronx, New York, led by Sister Aloysius, played by Meryl Streep. 
Sister James, played by Amy Adams, tells Sister Aloysius that Father Flynn, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, might have too much personal attention with the school's only black student, thus leading to Aloysius starting a crusade against Flynn to get him removed from the school. The film also features Viola Davis as the black boy's mother, Mrs. Miller. Streep, Hoffman, Adams, and Davis were heavily praised for their performances, and all were nominated for Academy Awards at the 81st Academy Awards, although none won. I love the chords in the final track, Doubts, which sound like they were recorded in a large church. Howard did not compose a film score for release in 2009, so we move ahead to 2010 with his score to Edge of Darkness, which is a British-American conspiracy political thriller film directed by Martin Campbell. Mel Gibson played the role of Boston homicide detective Thomas Craven, who works to find the killer of his activist daughter who is shot dead, but also has radiation poisoning. The conspiracy leads to a company called Northmore, a research and development facility under contract to the U.S. government, and secretly manufacturing nuclear weapons using foreign radioactive materials. This was Mel Gibson's first screen lead in eight years since the film Signs released back in 2002. Unfortunately, it was released behind James Cameron's Avatar and only broke even on its investment. The film was originally scored by classical composer John Carigliano, However, the decision was made during post-production to replace his score with a new one by Howard Shore. Here is a part of the track number 13 titled, Killing, where Howard uses the violin to put you on the edge of your seat, if not out of the theater. Here is part of track number 13 titled, Killing, where Howard uses the violin to put you on the edge of your seat, if not out of the theater. You might recall that Hans Zimmer and James Howard used a long violin crescendo in track number one of The Dark Knight in 2008 as a cue for the Joker to achieve a similar chalkboard-scratching effect.
The vast economic recession that crippled households and nations alike in 2008 apparently didn't strike the population of teenage girls. Judged solely on the spectacular record-setting box office performance of their beloved series of Twilight films, nothing about the third entry in the franchise, the Twilight Saga Eclipse, in 2010 is really any different from the previous films. The entire exercise is meant to infuse the two super-interests of teenage girls, vampire love and love triangles, into one package. The series became a billion-dollar enterprise despite having very few unique ideas and little intelligence in its concept, besides allowing the three leads to gaze into each other's eyes. A cinematic franchise deserves consistency in its original music, if not in memorable themes, then at least in tone. The first two Twilight scores did not have any appreciable connections. Alexandre Desplat followed Carter Burwell's sparsely contemporary and challenging work for the 2008 film with flowing romanticism on gorgeous piano in the 2009 sequel. When the rotating crew phenomenon brought Shore aboard for 2010's Eclipse, the famed Lord of the Rings veteran took an entirely different stance. Shore noted, I actually did some pretty thorough research. I like to read a lot, and I knew the story... I was really interested in it from a dramatic point of view. In order to blend more pop into the score, Howard asked the group Metric to help collaborate with the end credits. Here is track number 11, titled Jacob Black, which continues the use of a wistful piano solo in the Twilight Saga. In 2011, another Martin Scorsese-directed film, Hugo, was released. This film was a departure for Scorsese, who usually deals with heavy subject matters. For the first half of his career, Scorsese collaborated with Elmer Bernstein. 
However, starting in the 2000s, he began to use Howard Shore as the choice of composer, having now used Shore four times as composer. By supplementing his standard symphonic tones with accordion, Hans Martineau, cymbalon, tack piano, acoustic guitar, upright bass, and alto saxophone, Shore addresses the depth of mysteries and inventions in the story with several layers of musical wonder. Along the way, these contributors also lend the required Parisian spirit to the work, though the accordion seems to have the majority of that load. Here is the track, The Chase, which immediately transfers you to Paris. Expectations were incredibly high in 2012 when the first installment of the Hobbit trilogy premiered, a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. Originally announced as a pair of movies and then three installments, the change caused havoc in the pacing of the adaptation, forcing Peter Jackson to wildly embellish portions of the original Tolkien tale, resulting in languishing of the first film, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. The reparsing also resulted in scheduling issues and the loss of Guillermo del Toro as the director. In spite of groans from the hardcore Tolkien fans, the film was a great fiscal success, if not quite as good as the Lord of the Rings films. So much has been documented about the three scores for the Lord of the Rings that the initial absence of such clarity in the creative process for An Unexpected Journey caused heartache and endless questions about the decisions that led to such an undoubtedly messy, but still basically effective soundtrack for the picture. One of the intriguing consequences of Jackson's bloating of the early elements of Tolkien's story for An Unexpected Journey is that Howard was presented with more avenues of exploration for character and concept themes than one might have expected. The basic story is intact. Gandalf the wizard convincing Hobbit Bilbo Baggins to accompany a group of thirteen dwarfs on their journey to reclaim their kingdom from Smog, the evil dragon. Along their journey, they run into a number of obstacles, old and new, some of which exhibited awkward special effects, and taking viewers on tangents meant to simply justify the existence of a trilogy rather than a duel of films. By the end, the dwarves, the hobbit, and the wizard form a fellowship much like at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. I have to personally admit the Hobbit trilogy music does not reach the level of admiration I have for the music in The Lord of the Rings. Here is one track that I do like, titled The Adventure Begins. 
The year 2013 saw the fifth installment from Peter Jackson, The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, the middle chapter of an elongated adaptation of Tolkien's 1937 novel, The Hobbit. Much criticism has been aimed at the film from concept loyalists who cannot see the justification in the expanding of the plotline to fill three feature films. Pacing issues seem to be the primary concern regarding these movies, at times dragging, while during other times moving at too frenzy to speed. Added characters and action sequences may seem unnecessary. But for the purposes of tying into Jackson's The Lord of the Ring trilogy, they are understandable from the viewpoint of the entertainment industry who believes in selling tickets. In The Desolation of Smog, the company of thirteen dwarves and a hobbit continue in their aim to retrieve the mystical Arkenstone from the lair of Smog, the last dragon of the earth. While the wizard Gandalf investigates the uprising of evil forces that would establish the confrontation in The Lord of the Rings. Meanwhile, Bilbo the Hobbit continues to discover the power of the ring he possesses while on his fantastic journey, this time leading him through several new exciting locations. One of the benefits of having three films dedicated to The Hobbit is the consequent amount of output required from concept veteran Howard Shore, whose music for Middle-earth represents some of the best material written for the big screen in the digital era. The Desolation of Smog represented a shift in strategy in both the recording elements and the product on the screen. In its creation process, this project differed from its predecessors in that it was recorded in New Zealand rather than in London, though the choral portions of the mix remained in London. Also, Shore turned over orchestrating and conducting duties to frequent John Williams collaborator Conrad Pope, perhaps due to the stress of the production process at his age. Simply put, most agree that the music for the Lord of the Rings trilogy is superior to the music for the Hobbit trilogy. I have chosen two tracks from Smog to represent the score. The first is Feast of Starlight, which provides a quiet, beautiful interlude with fewer instruments and a solo voice, compared to much of the action music throughout much of the score.
The second track I've chosen is The Forest River, which provides the opposite sentiment of forces racing to a destination, utilizing a full orchestra, loud passages. Which do you like better? In between the second and final installments of the Hobbit trilogy films, Howard found time to create scores for two films in 2014. One of these films was Map to the Stars, David Cronenberg's latest and last full-length film, and a box office flop. The second was Rosewater, a John Stewart film about Iranian-Canadian journalist Maziar Bahari, who is detained by Iranian forces and brutally interrogated under suspicion that he is a spy. Finally, it was time for the last installment of The Hobbit Trilogy, with the 2014 release of The Hobbit, 
the Battle of the Five Armies. Audiences indulged themselves with the three The Hobbit films between 2012 and 2014, making the trilogy a continued financial success. But little of the same critical praise persisted at the end of the three films dedicated to The Hobbit. The Battle of the Five Armies still stormed through the holiday season of 2014 with over $800 million in grosses to show for itself but few viewers could honestly say that the culmination of this Tolkien story could compete emotionally with the impact of The Lord of the Rings' Return of the King in 2003. Jackson's finale this time consisted of the portions of The Hobbit dealing with the defeat of the dragon Smog and the conflict between the armies of hobbits, orcs, gores, men, and elves as they postured themselves for control over treasure and territory before the dark days that lie ahead. Nevertheless, the table was set for The Lord of the Rings by the conclusion of The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. The entire flashback of this trilogy neatly resolved and set the lead directly into the next narrative. The music for this series of The Hobbit films has taken listeners on a wistful but elusive journey back to the glory of The Lord of the Rings. Howard Shore's three new scores constructed with the same structural and instrumental elements and performed with a similar vocabulary and voice. For many, the music of The Hobbit had presented itself like one massive bonus feature related to The Lord of the Rings, a collective work never meant to compete with the unquestionable classic status of the original, but still entertaining in its offshoots from those origins. Some of it may be due to fatigue, due to the rapid succession of which all of this music came into being in only three years. Another factor may be that Peter Jackson didn't allow Howard the luxury of time to develop longer themes, while requiring an increased number of themes. For this last film, I have chosen to play appropriately The Last Goodbye. Many places I have been Many sorrows I have seen But I don't no will I forget all who took that road with me Night is now for me So ends this day The road is now calling And I must By silver streams that run down to the sea To these memories I will hold With your blessing I will go To turn at last to paths that This way, but now comes the day to bid you farewell. 
I bid you all a very fond farewell. In recent years, Howard seems content with scoring one film a year, possibly owing to his age and other non-film projects. In 2015, he scored the film Spotlight, his second film about child molestation in the Catholic Church. The plot covers the true story of how the Boston Globe Spotlight team, the oldest continuously operating newspaper investigative unit in the United States, uncovered the massive scandal of child molestation and cover-up within the local Catholic archdiocese, shaking the entire Catholic Church to its core. Mark Ruffalo plays the role of Michael Rosenzies, a journalist who digs into allegations of wrongdoing. Here is the track, The Directories, which is a very different sound for Howard compared to most previous works. In 2016, Howard scored a solo film titled Denial, a film about a writer and historian, Deborah Lipstadt, played by Rachel Weisz, who must battle for historical truth to prove that the Holocaust actually occurred when David Irving, a renowned Nazi German scholar and Holocaust denier, sues her for libel. Howard may have felt a connection to this film, given his Jewish background. Here is a portion of the final track titled epilogue, which I find provides an upbeat ending to the film.
Howard did not compose a soundtrack for 2017, and only a single 2018 film called The Catcher Was a Spy, a biographical spy film directed by Ben Lewin based upon the book of the same name. It stars Paul Rood as Mo Berg a former baseball player who joined the war effort during World War II and partook in espionage for the U.S. government. Released early in 2018, the film was not rated highly and earned less than $1 million. I couldn't find any tracks from Howard's last film score, and now it's time for me to wrap up this podcast. He has also composed a short piece. Here are some other fun facts about Howard Shore. He helped Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi to organize the first incarnation of the Blues Brothers Band, including recommending the band's name. Besides the theme song for Saturday Night Live, Howard also composed the theme song for Late Night was Conan O'Brien in 1993. There is a certain amount of parallelism between Howard and composer Danny Elfman. He and Danny Elfman have both formed hit bands, which were the Blues Brother and Oingo Boingo, respectively. Both scored a film for Tim Burton. Shore scored Ed Wood in 1994, and Elfman has scored numerous Burton films. Both scored a film for Peter Jackson, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, and The Frighteners in 1996, respectively. Finally, both scored a Hannibal Lecter film, The Silence of the Lambs in 1991, and Red Dragon in 2002, respectively. Howard Shore is married to Elizabeth Cottonmore, a writer, producer, and documentary filmmaker. He has a daughter, May, and as of 2004, Shore lives in Tuxedo Park, New York. Well, that's it for this music and sci-fi guest podcast about composer Howard Shore, and the last Treks and Sci-Fi podcast for 2018. Rico will be back next week in 2019 with another podcast of geeky goodness. I'm going to end this podcast with a fun track from the 1988 film Big, which includes a little heart and soul, as originally composed by Hoagie Carmichael and Frank Lesser, and as modified by Howard. Happy New Year, everyone! <laughs>